uh, comes out of uh, the book of Genesis. And the section of the Word of God that we're looking at, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, is too long for us to read that inclusively. Uh, So I'll be reading just selected portions of uh, that four-chapter passage, the story of Noah, the story of the flood, uh, in order for us to set the proper scriptural context for what we're going to be speaking on this morning. Beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, so first reading through the rest of that chapter, chapter 6, and to the first verse of chapter 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then chapter 7, verse 17 to chapter 8, verse 1. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased And bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains 
covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Now in chapter 8, verse 15, to chapter 9, verse 1. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of you, because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this morning, uh, our prayer would be that you would enable us to understand uh, the chief aspects of this great and incredible story. That we might understand how this word speaks to us even today. We would pray especially that we would understand the connection of the story of Noah, the story of the flood to gospel truths that, that we are saved by. We ask that you would do this, Lord. Uh, we live in a day and age in which uh, your word is scoffed at. So we pray for believing hearts, hearts that would understand your truth, desire to know Christ in every way, desire to walk with you. We would pray for this because we know that our calling is as those created in your image, renewed in the image of Christ. Our calling is to be salt and to be light to this world. Enable us to be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we come to the story of Noah this morning, there are two or three or four or five or six or seven or a multitude of questions that we might have for these four chapters. Uh, and we really do not have anything like the time to cover these kinds of questions that people have asked, that people have investigated, different perspectives have shown up, and so forth. Uh, even to think about some of these, like who were the Nephilim? And why were they still there after the flood? And what about the sons of God coming down to marry the daughters of men? 
What does that look like? What, what does that mean? There have been several interpretations on that. And, and, and could you really get all those animals onto the ark? And what did the ark look like? It's not that flannel graph thing we saw in Sunday school. That's for sure. All these kinds of questions are intensely fascinating, and some are actually quite profitable to look at. But none of those will get us to the main thing that we need to see out of the story of Noah and the story of the flood that is most crucial for what we want to know and what we want to understand. Because we've actually set ourselves through this year on a course of seeing how Christ and the story of redemption shows up again and again and again in all the pages of the Old Testament. And the passage we need to keep in front of us as we look at what we're uh, considering even this morning and through a great part of the book of Genesis and, again, all through the Old Testament. The passage that needs to be our reference point is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. There's a judgment promise that's given in Genesis chapter 3. It's Genesis 3.15. Remember, there... God is presenting his judgment and curse really upon the serpent. But at the same time, there's a promise of redemption. Genesis 3.15 goes this way. God says, and I will put enmity between you, uh, speaking of the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring, the word is seed, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, meaning the seed of the woman will bruise your head, the serpent's head, while you will bruise his heel. So the purpose in the study of looking at the story of of Noah this morning is to see what is happening now in the history of the world at this point that displays for us the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now think about this for a moment. Uh, We just considered Genesis chapter 4. And Genesis chapter 4 showed the the emerging kind of conflict and hostility between the two seeds. How the promise is threatened, but then how the promise was revived, and how the promise was protected. Threatened between Cain and Abel, Cain slaying Abel, Abel, uh, but then uh, it was actually preserved uh, in terms of the child of Seth, and then actually protected as the world and the line of Cain showed an increasing amount of ungodliness. Then you come to chapter 5, which we've not looked at. Chapter 5 is commonly understood to be the genealogy of Seth, which it is, but others have astutely observed it's also the first list of obituaries. Because in every one of the stories, the end of it is, and he died, and he died, and he died which is clearly a fulfillment of what God threatened in Genesis chapter 3, would be the outcome of man eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's prohibition, the curse of death. Now, by the time we come to chapter 6, we see a world of unrighteousness. And I want us to note how this came about. Chapter 4, again, the story of Cain. And we see that that Cain's uh, line, even though it's under a certain kind of curse of God, nevertheless is is also under some incredibly blessings in terms of technology and development and civilization. And that grows and grows. It grows in such a way that we need to ask ourselves um, some questions about... 
You can't challenge the divine wisdom. Now, don't, don't understand my question about challenging the divine wisdom. God understands exactly what he's doing. But from the standpoint of the human race, how good was it for the human race that God was merciful to Cain? Now, I raise that question because uh, often we hear in, in, among Christians, and especially among non-Christians, well, everybody deserves a second chance. And yeah, someone's really blown it. Even someone's murdered somebody. But that shouldn't really be the end of the story. We really should, you know, consider how we might rehabilitate people, how we might do these kinds of things. There's always commonly expressed the idea that we really ought to be merciful and merciful and merciful and merciful. Such that in my 13 years of teaching kids who ostensibly came from Christian churches and so forth, was that they didn't like the idea of justice and judgment hardly at all. Now, I raise this issue because Isaiah chapter 26, beginning at verse 9, verses 9 and 10, second half of verse 9 and 10, gives a very interesting perspective on why justice and judgment are absolutely essential to what God has done in human history. And that gives us a perspective on the judgment of the flood. So listen to this. Beginning in the middle of verse 9 in Isaiah 26. For when your judgments are in the earth, meaning God's judgments, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Verse 10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Now, I see this in Cain. Cain was shown an exquisite favor by God by virtue of the fact that he wasn't put to death for his murder. A mark was put on him so his life would be protected. And he goes on with his wife and son, established city and so forth, and a whole line of people who become actually quite... Uh, successful in a worldly way. But we notice what Isaiah is prophesying here. Does mercy to those who are unrighteous actually bring about a respect and honor and majesty seen in God? No, it doesn't. Now, another way of expressing this is found in Paul, book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says this to the Jews. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That is, God's program for kindness is to lead people to repentance. But does it happen? Well, the story of the Bible is no, it never happens apart from God intervening his grace that it takes God's action, God's divine working of mercy and grace before wicked people who are shown any favor will ever see the majesty of the Lord. So although God's intention with respect to his kindness and mercy and patience is repentance, it does not happen unless a sovereign God himself initiates and sustains and perfects that repentance. 
which is to say that in the face of man's depravity, only the grace of God can do anything that brings about righteousness. Now, the point is, always the story of the human race is apart from the grace of God, there's one direction human beings are going. Now, we come to the story of Noah. And in the story of Noah, the, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is threatened once again. God's promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. But now we see that the whole world has fallen to the side of the seed of the serpent. So the purpose of God saving Noah and his family is to protect and preserve the seed of the woman, the godly and believing seed of the woman, so that the great and final seed of the woman, who's going to come and personally and victoriously crush the head of the serpent, can come. That's the larger program in terms of what's going on in the story of Noah. And that's why as we read the story of Noah, we ought to see the story of Noah to be a prologue to the story of Christ. Now, the main idea and the main principle that shows up in the story of Noah is, in fact, the main principle and storyline of the gospel. Judgment necessary unto salvation. Without God's justice and judgment being satisfied and fulfilled, there can be no salvation. Or another way of putting it, God has always shown in Scripture that it is justice and his judgment that at the same time brings about his salvation. What we see in the story of Noah in terms of judgment and salvation, we see in the story of the cross, where judgment and salvation meet together. Now, three big themes and what we're looking at this morning in terms of the story. And so I'll describe them this way. It's in a kind of negative sense. Each one of these begins with never. <laughs> never was there ever a darker time in human history than during the time of Noah. We'll look at that. Secondly, never, ever was there a deadlier judgment put upon the human race throughout all the Old Testament than during the time of Noah. But also, never ever was there a greater deliverance by God in all of Old Testament history than what God did with Noah. Three big ideas. Uh, never was it so bad in all of human history. Never was the judgment so great in all of human history. Never was the deliverance so profound. And all that has its correlations to the gospel and the story of Christ. Now let's look at the fact that never ever in human history were things as dark or as bad as they were in the time of Noah. Uh, we've got several uh, verses where this description of the depravity of the human race presented to us. It's a pervasive depravity. It's described this way, Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, Genesis 6-11. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. The word violence is very significant to the description that God gives here of the way the world was. Genesis 6:12. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. 6:13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now, we have then these, these key descriptors of what's going on. Great wickedness, uh, evil residing constantly within the human heart, uh, fomenting further evil all the time, moral corruption that's extensive and exhaustive, a world that is filled with violence. Now, clearly this presents the human race and its utter oppositeness to what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates human beings after his image and pronounces upon them, behold, it's all very good. Clearly it's the opposite. The human race has gone bad, all the way bad, bad to the bone. And the narrative, the descriptive language, is showing us it could not get any worse. Now, I've asked students through the years and adults through the years, does this description of the world in the days of Noah Describe the world that we live in today. Does it? Well, the common answer I get is often, well, yeah. We live in a world that's really messed up. People are corrupt. There's violence everywhere. Yeah, sounds a whole lot like the headlines that we you know, see in the news or read in the newspaper. So it's helpful to get some honest perspective on the actual nature of the world as it is today compared to the Bible's description of the world in the days of Noah. So, here's the truth. All the archaeological and historical studies answer the opposite. This may be surprising. But the truth is that as we look back into human history, we see that societies in the past we're incredibly violent compared to what we actually see in the world today and actually what we have seen in the world even since the time of Christ, even before at times. For instance, um, societies in the past were very violent, much like what we've discovered in the last 60 years when we have uncovered Stone Age tribes, Papua New Guinea, the Amazonian jungles, uh, even our understanding of Native Americans before Europeans came. Now listen carefully. The, the people who study these tribes can conclude easily that the death rates among human beings, where one human being is killing another human being, so we're talking about violent death rates, ranged at the low end, at least 10% mortality is by people killing other people, all the way up to 50 and 60% that the deaths come about because people were killing other human beings. So Papua New Guinea, the Amazonian jungles, uh, Native Americans, uh, the numbers 
among those population groups, never less than 10% of the death rates because of one person was killing another person. Now, let's look at the contrast. Now, the contrast is this. Uh, the, world, the, the, world record, the world records of 2007 violent deaths, looking at the statistics, every place where a human government exists, as opposed to those few places now in the world where human governments don't exist, states, governments, as opposed to tribes and so forth. The violent death rates, less than 1%. Instead of 10 out of every 100 people dying, minimally, because of one person killing another, it's less than one person out of every 100 people dying because somebody's killing somebody. In fact, look at the United States and Europe from 1900 to 19. 60, which includes two massively destructive world wars. The percentage of people dying because of other people killing other people, less than 3%. That is why we can say that in the time of Noah, this was the darkest period of human history because what we're told by the word of God is that the world was filled with violence. We do not live in a world that's filled with violence where people die most of the time or a high percentage of the time or even 10% of the time because of other people killing other people. It's just not the case. We do not live in the same kind of violent world. Now, I say that not to any way make you think that this world is a nice and safe place. What I'm pointing out to you is this that as bad as you see things in this world, it was incomprehensibly worse in the days of Noah. That's why we need to understand this, the scale of judgment that God was going to bring upon the earth. Unless you can understand how utterly corrupt and violent it was comprehensively, you probably do not have a proper moral grid to understand why God would do such a thing. People are bad, and human beings will continue to be bad after the flood, Genesis 8.21. But there are factors that God introduced after the flood that have so greatly restrained human evil within the world. We don't have time to talk about those things, but the Bible speaks to that kind of thing happening. Now, the other thing we see about this period of time, and this has never happened since then, but the entire world is dominated by the seed of the serpent. Now, you can look at any of these studies in Genesis kinds of, of groups that, that actually try to figure out how many people were in the world by the time of Noah. On the low end, 750 million, just below a billion. On the high end, up to 4 billion. This was not a small population. Only one family out of the thousands and millions of people who lived on the earth, only one believing family, one believer in particular, Noah. That's, that's incredible. The point is, is that the, the seed of the serpent was the dominant force in all of the world. 
Only in Noah do we find one man, one family, a remnant of the godly line of Seth. Only one family in all of the earth that worships the true God in the true way. Only one left out of all the millions and millions that lived upon the earth. He alone can be described in his generation, as Second Peter 2, 5 says, as a preacher of righteousness. And that shows us how threatened the promise of Genesis 3.15 was at this point. The seed of a woman is nearly extinguished. Now, what are the big truths to be gained from this? Well, Moses and his audience of the first Israelites coming out of Egypt would have to look and say, we thought we had it bad. <laughs> Life was so much worse in the days of Noah. And we need to think that way as well. From the standpoint that we have to be very, very grateful to God that he put things into human history that have greatly restrained the violence and evil that human beings are so deeply capable of. Or to put it this way, man's inhumanity to man is so incredibly powerful that unless God had put things into place, we would have extinguished ourselves long, long ago. Never has the world been as corrupt as it was in the days of Noah. Never has the human race narrowed down to only one believing family since then. Never has the world seen such violent death again and again and again. And never has God permitted the influence of Satan to be this huge in the world. But Jesus gives us reasons to think that this is going to change. In Luke 17, 26 to 27, Jesus says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, what did we just describe? How it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Or in other words, the final judgment will come during a time in which the world and the inhumanity of the world will be like it was in the days of Noah. Now the second great theme that we see here is that God's response to the darkness of the human race in judgment and never ever has there been a deadlier judgment of God upon the earth as happened in the time of Noah. Three verses in particular describe what this judgment was going to be like. Genesis 6-7, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the earth. I am grieved that I have made them. Genesis 6-13, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Genesis 6:17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heaven. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. So there's several characteristics of this judgment. First, clearly, it's supernatural. 
the flood involves the agency and activity of God second only to the creation of the cosmos and the heavens and the earth in the very beginning. There is no normal, natural way to describe what happened when God brought the flood upon the earth. It is so clearly God acting in a tremendously supernatural way. It's comprehensive. The judgment will fall on all human beings, all human beings everywhere. Each of the verses makes that very, very clear. But this judgment also brings death to everything in it that has the breath of life. This is a comprehensive judgment. This is a universal judgment that God brings upon the world. Perhaps most importantly, it is a just judgment. God has every right to react to our rebellion in terms of his holiness and righteousness and then to bring his wrath upon the world in this way. And the the story of Noah is very, very clear about God's reaction. He's, he's, he regrets it. He's sorry to the heart. All of those anthropomorphic ways of describing God demonstrate that this was a grievous, grievous thing in terms of what the human race became. But clearly, God has all the right to punish evil and to punish disobedience. It's also a unique judgment. Never in the history of the Old Testament was there ever a judgment like this to this extent. And think about this. The Tower of Babel, that was God's judgment. But it never destroyed everybody. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, desperately wicked cities. Everybody destroyed, but the surrounding area was kept safe. On Egypt, the ten plagues. Not every Egyptian died. The last plague, the firstborn died. A significant judgment, but not everyone. Fall of Jericho. Well, you know, Rahab was reserved and preserved out of that. The conquering of Canaan. Many people fled Canaan, so they weren't involved in the conquest of Canaan by Joshua and the armies of Israel. Uh, the ten northern tribes were taken away in 722 to Assyria. A lot of death, but not everybody died. 586 B.C., the southern two tribes taken away to Babylonia. A lot of people died. Not everybody died. And the great destruction of Jerusalem, the temple that Jesus predicted to happen, which took place in AD 70. We know that perhaps a million Jews died in that, locked up in that city with that siege for three and a half years. But it did not extinguish the Jewish race. This judgment of the flood is a unique judgment in all of human history. There's only one judgment that will ever be of greater proportions. And that's the final judgment. Peter says in Second Peter, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And the Apostle Paul adds this perspective. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished 
with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. So, as you read through the New Testament, you're reminded that the New Testament presents the judgment of the flood as a warning about the final judgment to come, which will be so much greater. Devastation and destruction, so much far-reaching, everlasting destruction upon those who do not know the Son of God. Now, the last theme is this. Never was there a greater deliverance by God in all of the Old Testament than this deliverance of Noah and his family by God. Now, this is where we see that judgment and salvation are tied together in Scripture. It's how the story of Noah is a prologue and a parallel and a prototype of the story of Christ. So what does the story tell us so far? So chapter 6 shows us Genesis 3.15 promise. It's at the point of being terminated because there's only one man and one family who are heirs of the promise. The rest have gone over to the dark side of the serpent. But we see in that that it's God's judgment that's going to be God's means of salvation by which the seed of the woman is going to be preserved. God uses judgment in order to bring about salvation. And that's where we see in all of this a number of correspondence between Noah and Christ. Uh, the text itself gives us some, some hints of this. If you were to look back into chapter 5, Noah's father, when he names him, he says this one is going to give us rest. Um, some translations say comfort. But the word rest is the primary meaning, and the word Noah sounds like the word rest. He's going to give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the curse that is upon the ground. And of course, Jesus himself said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And the book of Hebrews promises us that in Christ we have that Sabbath rest yet to enter into. We also think about Noah's status before God. Uh, Genesis 6-8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. We know at the baptism of Christ, the voice of God from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God's favor resting upon Christ. We can draw comparisons with Noah's character as well. In Genesis 6-9, Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God. Now, again, Noah is the only man, the Scripture says, actually has favor in the eyes of God. We're not told about the spiritual nature of his sons at this point. Noah himself is considered to be the one man uniquely righteous in all of the world. Now, we, we know that that righteousness is not a moral perfection. It's a righteousness by grace. But in a far greater way, 
this character of Noah is displayed in Christ in a perfect way. Jesus is the one and only truly, uniquely righteous man who's ever lived since Adam. So whether it's the demons that shout out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, or the preaching to the apostles a short time after Pentecost when they're saying to the people of Israel, you are the ones who denied the Holy and Righteous One. We, we know that the very nature of Christ was uniquely righteous, being fully perfect, fully right before God, without sin at all in terms of his account. But the most important parallel between Noah and Christ can be looked at in terms of the mission and the calling and the work that God gave them to do. In the story of Noah, in the face of God's divine wrath against a fallen world, Noah's mission is to build an ark as a provision of divine mercy. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructing an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. So God's divine wrath falling upon the world. God uses Noah and the ark to save the human race from utter destruction. Of course, the parallel is the work of Christ upon the cross. John the Baptist announcing Jesus says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.25 speaks of Christ, whom God puts forward as a propitiation in his blood, where the word propitiation is a specifically significant word describing the atonement of Christ. It means a sacrifice that satisfies divine justice and turns away the wrath of of God. The death of Christ on the cross, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, a sacrifice that's a propitiation because it satisfies the justice of God when God judges and turns away his holy wrath. So that Paul then says in Romans 5 9, since we have been justified, declared righteous by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? So, coming back to the main idea of this message in the story of Noah. Out of judgment, salvation comes. This principle is central to the gospel message. It's central to Genesis 3.15 because it's going to be the judgment placed upon the serpent that brings salvation because it is Christ who crushes the serpent's head by his death upon the cross. It takes God pouring out his wrath upon his own son, bearing the judgment for sin that crushes and destroys the serpent and his influence 
in the world. So, conclude with three important differences between Noah and Christ. The story of Noah and the story of the ark is about preserving the promise of Genesis 3.15. The story of Christ is about the promise being fulfilled. Secondly, Noah's story is about the first judgment, a judgment that is in the past. It's never to be repeated again. But the story of Christ is also about a future judgment to come that only the death of Christ on our behalf can be the ark that takes us safely through. And finally, although God used Noah to save the human race, to preserve the promise, Noah and his family still needed a Savior. They still needed Christ. And although we may see God do great things through human beings, as he did through Noah, no one is ever saved by the works that he does, even if God greatly blesses and honors those works. The only one who's done all that God has required is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world to save sinners, of whom the Apostle Paul says he was the foremost. But rather, but whether your sin is great, like that of the Apostle Paul, or whether, in some sense, your sin is smaller, no one escapes the final judgment except to the ark that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our faith in Him that saves, that safely takes us through the judgments that are to come. I encourage you, even this day, to think about all that God has given you in Christ, to rely upon Him, to rest in Him, and to desire evermore to live for His glory. In His name. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for Christ. And thank you how the story of Noah can speak to the story of our Savior, even Jesus. And so we pray now. Enable us, Lord, to live as you want us to live. Those who know Jesus. In his name. Amen.